And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. On this podcast, I'm going to focus on answering a bunch of Q&As, and uh, I am so far behind. Again, I apologize for not getting to these as soon as possible. In this first question, uh, David wants to, to find out what kind of returns that he is likely to get over the next uh, seven, eight years. And uh, he's focused especially on our ETF recommendations, the best in class. Now, let me first talk about those best in class um, uh, portfolios. We have done our best. And when I say we, it's 90 percent plus, in fact, let's call it 99%, the work of Chris Pedersen. And what Chris is trying his best to do is to is to, to perform as well as you would using the DFA funds. In other words, DFA has a group of factor-oriented funds focused on size, focused on value and quality and momentum. And what Chris is doing is seeing if we can put together this portfolio of ETFs and get as good a return as we would likely get with the DFA funds. And uh, that's very near and dear to my heart because that's what I have in my own portfolio. And as you may have heard in a recent podcast, uh, when we tested it back some 10 years, uh, the ETF strategy actually did a little better than the DFA funds, and you wouldn't have to pay a management fee. Now, that, of course, means that you'd have to maintain the management and do whatever is necessary to rebalance, and and uh, a lot of the, of, of the work that I personally don't want to do, so I have an advisor to do it for us. But it is legitimate for me to say that if we're trying to figure out an average of some sort about the past, that I could see what the DFA equity asset classes have produced in terms of risk, in terms of return. Now, He's looking to apply this to a relatively short period of time. So that makes it very difficult to know what is reasonable. What we do know, if we go back to 1926, the S&P 500 compounds at about 10% a year. And... We know that the average return per year was about 12%. Now, that's a huge difference when you start talking about compounding, but the 10% is the compounding return. The average means that if you had two years and the first year it went up 50% and the second year it went down 50%, that your average return would be a zero return, up 50, down 50. On the other hand, the compounding impact of that 
is a loss of about 12, 13% a year over that two years. In other words, the first year it goes up to a dollar and a half, and then the following year it's worth 75 cents. So when David asked for an average, uh, if we were talking very long term, I would want to talk in terms of compounding uh, rather than the average uh, return. So that still begs the question, what would be the likely difference between the ETF strategy that we have and what you would likely get from the S&P 500? Well, I would expect that the, the uh, portfolio that is a combination of U.S. and international, large and small, and value and growth, and has emerging markets and REITs in the portfolio, that that portfolio is going to make more than the S&P 500. And I also believe that in the worst of times, under what we'll call the normal worst of times, that it would, in fact, produce a lower rate of return than the S&P 500 because the S&P 500 is a higher quality asset class. Well, we've looked going, in fact, in one study from 1970 through 2017, we can see that the S&P 500 compounded at about 10.5%. And the worldwide equity portfolio compounded at about 12.7%. So that was advantage uh, global diversification, advantage small cap and large diversification, advantage value and growth so the bottom line is, is that over this long period of time, there was this advantage to these, these other factors like small, like value. And, uh, and, and, and so then the question is, uh, what kind of return would you expect over the next per- period of time? Well, the problem is, is that there are periods where the S&P 500 just blew the roof off while the diversified portfolio didn't. For example, I've mentioned this many times in the past, that from 1995 to 1999, the S&P 500 compounded at about 28% plus a year, while the worldwide diversified portfolio compounded at uh, about 11. And by the way, if David is going to add any uh, fixed income to the portfolio, uh, you would not expect to make as much in the coming years as you did over this whole period of time from 1970 through 2017 when the all fixed income portfolio made about 7%. It's just not likely to do that over the next uh, five to ten years. So it is very difficult to tell you what the average will be. In fact, if, if, if David, I know David has seen this table, 
And because the portfolio that we have built in those best-in-class ETFs are so closely designed to act like DFA funds, and the DFA indexes were used to create this table, I would expect that probably those funds or those ETFs will get about the same return as the DFA asset classes. But the challenge is you just have no idea how the market's going to evaluate equities, period. Then whether there'll be the premium for value, will there be the premium for small cap? But I would not expect the returns over that that period of time to be much different with the S&P 500 uh, than the the best-in-class ETFs. But as I said before, it might be very different. I could look at a year like 1977 where the worldwide stock strategy was up 28% and the S&P 500 was down 7 On the other hand, I know, as I mentioned before, in that period from 95 to 99, there were two years that the S&P 500 made about 30% average, while the worldwide portfolio made about 5.5% average. Now, David goes on to ask a question just as important as the first, and that is the expected loss in uh, these uh, different columns when the market decides to make an adjustment. And, boy, I'll tell you, we know that from time to time the market goes down 50%. Now, what is so difficult to know is whether you will get a traditional bear market, if you have one in the next five or ten years, and it's highly likely that not only will we have one, but it could be a significant one because we've had such a huge run in the market. So what do we know about historical bear markets? Well, from 29 to 32, everything took a licking. Bonds did okay, but all stock uh, asset classes performed poorly. In fact, they were huge losses. But not so different, interestingly enough, from the 73-74 Uh, or the 2000 through 2002 bear markets in the U.S. and internationally, um, uh, plus inflation, or I should say taking inflation into consideration. Now, the difference is, uh, and we've talked about this before, is the bear market of 2000 through 2002 was really just a small decline for an all-equity portfolio, whereas with the S&P 500 over that three-year period, uh, it was down uh, over 40%. But when you look at the bear market of, for example, 2008, where the S&P 500 was down 37%, the... Uh, the worldwide equity strategy was down uh, over 41%. So I would think, theoretically, those same kinds of losses 
uh, our legitimate exposure to the downside over the next five to ten years. But remember, we've been through the longest bull market run in history. It hasn't been the biggest returns ever, but in terms of just profitable years, it's been going on now for a long time. And just after you have markets that go down for a long time, they can snap back in a very big way in a very short period of time. And there's always that risk to the downside as well. Now, there is no magic to a year, but if we simply look at calendar years over the last uh, 48 years, this 1970 through 2017, yet we can see these losing years of, I'm going to round off here, 15% and uh, 26% and 7% in the 70 through 79 period. And then in the next 10 years, there was one loss of 4.9. Then in the next 10 years, there was one calendar year loss of 3%. And then in the 2000 through 2009, it was bang, 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 down 9, down 12, down 22, and then in 2008, down 37 and we've we've basically had a bull market run from 2010 a broadly diversified portfolio would have had a couple of losing years one down 9 and one down 2.3 but the S&P 500 did not even have a losing calendar year over that decade so it is very difficult to know it's it's the same problem that we have in making good decisions about conversion to a Roth. If we knew what tax rates were going to be 10, 20, 30 years from now, it would be very easy to make a decision about what makes sense in the conversion to the Roth and to pay the money to make that conversion. And and you're always you're taking a risk. You're doing the wrong thing. And it could be the wrong thing big time, depending on what happens to tax rates. But this is, this is what risk is all about. In that diversification podcast I did last week, I talked about some people who will, will, will convert half of their IRAs to Roth or their 401ks to Roth and let the other half be regular IRAs and 401ks. So when the time comes, you can pick what you wish makes sense in terms of uh, of taxes. Just another kind of diversification. Well, this is an interesting question. In fact, it's kind of a two-part question. The first question is, how are we going to pay off our national debt? Uh, I will... <laughs> I will just say that I don't know how we're going to pay off our national debt. I know that it's possible to pay off our national debt. We could inflate our currency and make it mostly worthless and use that worthless currency to pay off our national debt. Uh, by the way, I, uh, I, I started, uh, I, I took a look to see if there were some good articles 
on how we can eventually pay off the debt. And uh, I found one by uh, uh, on the website of thebalance.com, uh, Will the U.S. Debt Ever Be Paid Off? And I will uh, include a link to that article uh, in the notes regarding this podcast. But the question that I actually can respond to is, I think it's a very important one, and that is, how can investors invest in a system that is destined to collapse under this debt? Now, we don't know that it's going to collapse under this debt. Uh, it, it, um, how can one know? Or maybe, maybe it'll be long after we've, we've died and the money will have su- supported us during our life and be worthless uh, to those that survive us. Those are things we just don't know. And a lot of us, including myself, live in this fear of a collapse. And, and, I've, and I've talked about this before. I have been f- afraid of a collapse in our society and our economy over most of my life. And, and then our, our president campaigns proclaiming himself to be the king of debt. Now, when I heard that, I thought, yeah, I mean, you, what you tried to do uh, with your uh, casinos uh, was highly leveraged. And in fact, you have, uh, as a business person, used an amazing amount of debt. Uh, and what he never said was, I'm also the king of paying off the debt. So I've worried, worried about this Regardless of who the president has been, uh, we have had short periods of time where it looked like uh, people were coming around to take on the responsibility of debt, but with politicians, that just doesn't seem to last very long. Now, because of that, I've always been very conservative with my investments. I mean, I've made a few very high-risk investments that paid abnormally high returns. But for the most part, when I have had a significant amount of money, I have used it in a conservative way. And this debt that people are worried about is one of those reasons. So what do you do about it? How do you invest in a system that is destined to collapse for whatever the reason might be? So, I think it's fairly easy, at least on paper. It's easy because you've got to make a decision. You've either got to come up with some sort of a story about the future as you see it, or you need to find somebody who is so smart that they can put all the moving parts together and come up with some sort of a prediction where things are going in the future. I don't know how you could predict out more than a few months at a time, as crazy as this world can be. So, if you can't trust somebody to tell you what is going to happen, what do you do? Well, it seems to me that what you have to do 
is you have to take, if you want growth, some part of your portfolio, expose it to the growth asset classes, equity normally, and have the rest of that money invested in some sort of a defensive way. Now, for me, for part of my portfolio, that defensive way is with market timing. For another part of my portfolio, that defensive way is with fixed income. And basically, because historically the most, the, the, the most sought-after asset class in, time, in times of real catastrophic kinds of situations has been U.S. government bonds. But if that government is collapsing, I mean, you know what a Confederate bond is worth these days. It, it's worth probably almost nothing other than some sort of a, of a collectible uh, uh, value. I was with somebody this last weekend uh, who worked for Ross Perot for uh, 40 years. And uh, the, the stories were, were just amazing stories. What, what an amazing, interesting guy he was. But, as you may recall, uh, when he was campaigning for president, uh, yes, he had his stock in his own corporation, uh, public corporation, but the rest of his money was totally in treasury bills. Treasury bills. At least that's what he said. Not long-term government bonds. That, I guess that would be too risky. But short-term government bonds. And there are a lot of people not as rich as Ross Perot who do the same thing. They are amazing savers. They're not people willing to take the equity market risk, or in some cases, not even the real estate risk. Those markets collapse from time to time as well. So when you're afraid, and my heart goes out to you because I'm afraid, and I just kind of hold my nose, have enough money in U.S. government bonds or market timing that I feel secure. But I know, and I'm ready for it to be a very, very rough ride. Next question has to do with the returns of DFA uh, versus the Vanguard fund portfolios that we recommend, and Fidelity, and Schwab. Uh, in the question, they did not mention uh, the ETF portfolios. There are still a lot of people who really aren't comfortable in exchange-traded funds. So anyway, their basic question is this. Are funds from DFA so superior in return that they're able to beat your self-constructed, they're referring to the do-it-yourself, low-cost Vanguard, Fidelity, and Schwab portfolios. And then what they want to know is over time, and they said, even considering the additional fees that you pay advisors 
in order to use DFA funds? Well, it's a, the, the answer is, is very tricky because it's easy to say that based on the past that DFA funds the way they are constructed are likely to give a better rate of return than trying to duplicate those portfolios at Vanguard, Fidelity, and Schwab using mutual funds. But the the best-in-class ETFs that we have on our, on our site can be purchased without any commission at Vanguard. You know, you won't be in Vanguard mutual funds. In some cases, you'll be in Vanguard ETFs. But in the Vanguard mutual funds, they don't even have some of the asset classes in mutual funds that we would like you to own as a part of the portfolio. And remember, we never have very much of any one equity asset class in the portfolio. So even the ones that are more risky are not, do not give you a huge uh, exposure. So you could do this with the ETFs. We're trying to replicate and do, and do better, if possible, than DFA. Now, you've, you've added one part to this portfolio, and that is the payment of a fee. Can you make enough at DFA to make up for the fee and end up with as much money as you would end up if you were in the Vanguard mutual funds? Well, really, there's two answers to that. One is based on the past, inequities, inequities. It is, it is legitimate to see how historically you could have made enough inequities to cover the cost difference between the Vanguard do-it-yourself and the DFA after paying an advisor. Now, the minute that you start adding fixed income to the portfolio, uh, it becomes more difficult. And when I was in the business as an advisor, I would tell people that if you're 60-40, 60% equity, 40% fixed income, or less equities, 50-50, 40-60, etc., that you're probably not going to do better than being a do-it-yourselfer at Vanguard. But that totally ignores the question of whether you're going to do it yourself or not. Because if you're not going to do it yourself, yes, you are probably better off paying an advisor. And that would be true even at Fidelity. They have a service where they will they, they will manage your money using the Vanguard funds, very conservative strategy. Typically, their exposure to equities is going to be the total U.S. market and the total international market plus bonds. So it's large cap, mostly growth. But that historically has been conservative. So that's another uh, variable in trying to make the decision what's the smart way to go. 
Now, what I don't think that Vanguard does is to manage the Merriman best-in-class diversified portfolio built to look like his own DFA portfolio and charge you 30 basis points. I don't think they'll do that at Vanguard. But if you want to, if you want to do this in a dirt simple way and you feel comfortable doing the business with somebody but Vanguard, what you could do is use M1, where basically you pick our best-in-class strategy, whether it's the worldwide or the all-value or even the all-small-cap value. You can pick that portfolio, and it automatically rebalances and does everything that, that you need. Now, that is going to be most effective. All that automated rebalancing and whatnot is going to be better in, an, in a tax-deferred account or tax-free account rather than a taxable account. You might make some different decisions if you were in a taxable account. So anytime it's a, what if I do this or that, it isn't just the return, it's the ability for an individual to actually do it. I have said it a hundred times. I have lost over 4,000 pounds in my life. In fact, in the, last, in the last year, I have been up and down as much as five pounds a month. It's an outrage. I'm a really smart guy. Well, I'll rephrase that. I'm a moderately smart guy about part of my life and really appear to be out of control in another part. And for a lot of people, the part they're out of control and have a hard time dealing with is the money part, not the eating, not the exercise, etc. That's why that's why I had a business taking care of money for other people because they wouldn't do it themselves. Here's a question uh, from a uh, high school vice principal. He says, I just discovered you through the Choose FI podcast. And by the way, I'm going to include a link in the narrative uh, about this podcast uh, to that podcast. Uh, I thought those guys did a, a, a great job of getting a lot of information out of me. Uh, Choose FI is a website that is uh, involved in the FIRE movement, the uh, financial independence, retire early. And there are a couple of young fellows who are doing a tremendous job of of educating people. And in fact, I just got an early copy of their new book. I haven't had time to read it, but uh, I look forward to reading it and hopefully giving it a great positive review uh, when it's time to come out in October. Anyway, um, this particular gentleman, the vice principal, says that um, he's he's gone through our website, and but he's under the gun. He knows I've probably answered this question somewhere on the website, but he needs it now. So let me tell you what his uh, his dilemma is. Uh, he he has just moved. In fact, he's moving from one state 
to another and to obviously a different school. And uh, in his last job, they had a 401k, and uh, now they have a 403b. And he is nervous about the 403b because he's read a lot of articles about how 403bs uh, have a lot of bad options and being filled with annuities. Now, there's a 403b in a way, is no different than a 401k. Well, there may be small differences, but they're very small. You could have virtually the same Vanguard funds in a 403b as you would a 401k. But the 403b market was taken over by the insurance industry many decades ago, and they did, in fact, sell a lot of variable annuities, which is a very naughty thing to do, to, to, to sell somebody a product that has a, a, an extra fee to create a tax-deferred situation when the tax-deferred situation was already allowed without having to pay that fee. I mean, that's a, that is a terrible, terrible outrage. But... He says that within this 403B, there are two options, TIAA and AXA, the AXA company, and the TIAA-CREF, I think it's called. Now, TIAA, and this is a, a challenge. I'm not really sure what TIAA funds that uh, this uh, fellow has uh, in the 403B, but I can tell you that they have a series of index funds that are very, very low cost. And then they have some other funds that are more expensive. So the first thing he's going to have to find out is whether or not the, uh, the TIAA funds are the low cost variety. But even if they are not the low-cost variety, I expect that they will be better than the AXA. Because I, from what I know on the Internet, the AXA funds are uh, uh, actively managed. Now, to be fair, somewhere deep in the information about AXA uh, may be uh, that they offer uh, index funds. Or it may be the AXA advisor uh, has access to funds that are index funds um, that, that they have put into that account. But even then, you got to be careful because sometimes you'll find index funds with over a 1% fee. Drives me nuts, but that, that's the way they make money off of these teachers. So the the high school principal. Nick, you're going to have to do a little research to find out, but from everything I know about the past, I would pick TIAA over AXA. Now, having said all of that, I have no idea how much you make or your spouse makes if, in fact, you're married. And the question then is, uh, are there conditions under which you'd actually be better off if you qualify to use IRAs instead of the 403B? 
Now, there may also be some sort of a match within the school district, and you certainly would want to take advantage of that match. Well, I've got time for actually a part of one. This is a part of one because I'm doing a little research on the, on the other part, um, but this is a gentleman who is very interested in the work of DFA. Now, here's what's special about the DFA work. Actually, on the board of directors of DFA, two of the, the directors are Dr. Eugene Fama and Dr. Kenneth French. These are two of the best-known academics uh, in the financial community or the, uh, in terms of having to do with developing strategies or ways of approaching investing that have changed, I mean, literally changed the face of investing, much like, like John Bogle changed the industry with index funds. These people were the folks that, that brought factor investing out way back in the 90s. It's now common uh, throughout the industry. It's common for large numbers of academics to be to be studying uh, these factor uh, factors of investing, and they've expanded. Originally, it was basically about the difference in size of companies, or the difference in the value of companies, or what market they were in. But today, they are also the factors of momentum and quality, and these are all things about individual companies that would indicate something different about them that could lead to different rates of return historically. And the question that this gentleman asks, and it, I think it's a great question, is are there other than Eugene Fama and Kenneth French, are there other authors who agree or disagree with their results? Has the data been replicated by other research groups. Well, boy, Trevor, are you going to have some fun reading? Because all you have to do, if you wish, is do a search, academic research on factor investing. And that is likely going to take you to ssrn.com. Sam, Sam, R and as in nancy.com. And you will be able to see a lot of, uh, of, of academics who have weighed in on this topic. Of course, you will unlikely see a five-factor asset pricing model by Dr. Fama and Dr. French. But I will also, as you're going to know, uh, you will also see in all of the work that Fama and French and others have done, uh, all of the references uh, that are cited in, in their studies. So, uh, yeah, this is a real big deal uh, in the academic community. There are a lot of people who have uh, have weighed in on this and uh, and 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 turned 
the uh, research uh, inside out. Uh, here's the part I like. I can't find an academic that says, don't buy, uh, don't buy index funds. I can't find an academic that says, uh, don't broadly diversify your funds, your portfolio. I can't find an academic that says, uh, pay high expenses to get into actively managed funds. No, they say invest in low-cost uh, uh, index funds. All the things that we've been trying to get people to do now. Now, there, are, there is a lot of disagreement about what are the most important factors. And they've added a number of factors over the last years, as I mentioned. But I suspect most of them would agree uh, that the big ones are size, are value, and, uh, and probably today they would add quality and momentum. These are just different ways to differentiate the way that companies act in the market and the way that uh, the things that make them special, smaller companies doing better because, by the way, they're more risky than the larger companies. As the academics will tell you, there is no magic in all of this. It's just uh, uh, probably a matter of doing the same kinds of important diversification with factors as we do with stocks versus bonds and U.S. versus uh, international. Anyway, Trevor, you're going to have some fun I think uh, you may only read the uh, abstracts and the conclusions, but it's going to be worth it because you're going to see a lot of very smart people uh, have a strong belief uh, in these ways of analyzing uh, stocks, asset classes, to build a better portfolio for the long term. At the end of the day, We'll never know. We've just got to get there and see how it works because we are always dealing with that wicked unknown. Thanks for listening. I'll be talking to you soon. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.